All right, good morning, Transit family. How's everyone doing today? We good? Awesome. Open up your Bibles to Ephesians 6. 5 through 9 is where we're at. This is going to be our last section, kind of talking about uh, authority and, and submission. And then for the next three weeks, we're diving into spiritual warfare. Who's excited about that? Yeah. Good. You're excited about that. Okay, good. And then uh, come October, we're going to close out our study in Ephesians. And we very well be praying for the elders as we pray into this, but already crafted the sermon series. We're going to be diving into Jonah. Uh, so get excited for that. I'm excited for that. All right, so a quick commercial break. If you're new at the transit and not a member and want to know more about our mission, vision, values, theological distinctives, what it means to be a member, so on and so forth, we have a membership class on, uh, on Zoom tomorrow night from 6 to 7 p.m. So email me, email jake at transitchurch.com, and we'll give you the info you need. So just want to do a, a plug uh, for that. And so with that said, in our text today, uh, Paul is giving commands to both servants and masters in the early church in uh, the church at Ephesus. And so what we've looked at so far is Paul has given specific commands to husbands and wives and uh, children and parents. And now he's talking to masters and servants. And um, the idea that we've looked at so far is that if you are in a position of authority, you are to lead, to model your leadership after the leadership of Jesus. You are to lead like Jesus. And if you are under somebody's authority, you are to yield to that authority voluntarily like Jesus yielded to the authority of the Father. Okay, so... Be like Jesus in authority, be like Jesus under authority are the exhortations. And so today we're talking about the master-servant relationship. And um, the twofold direction of my sermon is going to be this, and I'm going to do my best. We've, been, we've gone a little bit over, so I'm doing my best to condense it without speaking in five times speed so you guys can actually follow me. Uh, but the first half, I'm going to talk about um, just answering the question that maybe you've been asked before or maybe you've come across before. Does the Bible endorse slavery? Does the Bible condone slavery? Um, does our text imply that? So I'm going to talk about that for a little bit. And then secondly, we're going to talk about uh, how we view our work as followers of Jesus. And the three points of the second half of the sermon are our work comes from the Lord, our work is to be done for the Lord, and our work is to be done with the Lord. So let's read this text, and then we'll pray and dive in. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, verses on the screen. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you, God. <laughs> what a great day of just rejoicing um, that you are so good and you are so great. And the beauty of joining, linking arms shoulder to shoulders with the redeemed of God. Some of us uh, just pastorally knowing your situations are in really, really hard situations and yet hearing your voice today cry out that God is good in the midst of this suffering. And so, God, that's what, we, that's what we're here, God. You, you did this. This gathering is from you, Jesus. And so if it's from you, God, let it be for you today, Lord Jesus. I know there's a stage. I know there's a, a word. I know there's songs, Lord God, but let this, uh, all of our attention and our affection be driven to you, Lord Jesus. 
What do you want to say? What do you want for our lives? What does it look like for you to truly be Lord over every area of our lives, God? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you give us revelation? Would you give us, would you open up our eyes to see that Jesus is real? He's really present by his, by his spirit and he's really worth it all. He's worth, no, no matter what we have to lay down, Jesus, we confess and we profess today that you are worth it, God. So, Lord, today, would you have your way with your word, with our hearts, Lord Jesus, um, with the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, Lord Jesus, and let all eyes be on you. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, at first glance, our text uh, uh, with a cursory reading uh, could, could very well come across that, uh, could look like the Bible condones slavery. Because instead of the Apostle Paul outright condemning the master-servant relationship outright, instead what he does is he gives instructions to masters and servants on how they are to conduct themselves in that system. And so there's kind of a dilemma there. H- how, do we, how do we reconcile that? And uh, so I'm going to give you a couple points, and I want you guys to write these down. Um, if you ever have a conversation with someone who's well-versed, who's been following the new atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins and the like, so that's the biggest, biggest thing atheists go for against our faith is that, oh, well, the Bible endorses slavery, which is just an outright lie. And so first thing I want to say is this. There is no dilemma with slavery if you are an atheist. There is no dilemma. Um, the, the, in, in order to con- condemn slavery, you have to actually steal from our worldview. If you're an atheist, you have to steal from our worldview. There's philosophical presuppositions of, uh, of the dignity and worth and value of humanity and that the chief ethic is love. You, how do you get that from atheism? If God doesn't exist, if you and I, the only reason we're here is because we're just highly evolved slime from a puddle billions of years ago then why do we have value? Why is love a chief ethic? If natural selection is how we got here, the stronger oppressing the weaker, and that's survival of the fittest, then how is that not the absolutely philosophical foundation and bedrock of the institution of slavery globally? Is natural selection. God doesn't exist. Morality is subjective, not objective. Oh, that's, that's, that's your truth. Well, okay. Well, if, if you are a moral relativist and God doesn't exist, then, then, then why is anything wrong with anything? Right? And so, so the dilemma doesn't exist. If you're an atheist, and I would argue that if you are an atheist, it's actually your worldview that is the, the, the philosophical foundation that the institution of slavery by wicked men can be built upon. Um, that you can do what you want, and you're going to die from dust you came, from dust you return. And, and then it begs the question, too, if, you, if you're an atheist, and, and all of life is a cosmic accident, a cruel joke of nature, why does humanity have more value than a beast of burden? Why, why can a farmer own an oxen to plow his field and, and there be nothing wrong with that relationship based off of the tenets of atheism and yet why is slavery of another human being wrong given atheism? So I just want to, so this, the reason I share that is this. When it comes to defending our faith, Christian, we are not the only ones who need to defend our worldview. Everybody has a view, a lens with how they view the world. And so when we enter into conversations, we're not the only ones that have to give a defense for our faith. Other people do. And so we can gently and, and kindly push against presuppositions and saying, given what you believe, why, why is that wrong? Tell me about that. Um, and then begin to see what they say. It's amazing. Hey, I'm not the only one who has to give an account. Why don't you give an account? So I just want to say, let's go on offense in that. So it's the first point. Um, and I would say my, my main point would be this. It's actually only the Christian worldview that dismantles the foundation of slavery, uh, the philosophical foundation that slavery is built upon. And the first thing, uh, I'm going I'm to try to be brief here. I had a lot of, I have a lot of quotes, maybe I'll just read those. Uh, so the first thing is the Imago Dei, is that humanity, more so than animals or vegetation, that humanity is stamped with the image of God. 
that we have inherent intrinsic value and worth and dignity, right? Um, I was at a Bridgewater lawn party with my wife, and it's in the Shenandoah Valley in the country. It was a, a country carnival, okay? It was amazing. And uh, around the carnival is no joke. Just these people would volunteer their John Deere tractors or their international harvesters, and they would just, they would literally, like, if, if this on the table is, is where the carnival was, they would just, for the whole night, they would just do laps with their tractors. It was amazing. I was like, what is, where am I right now? This is awesome. So many amazing mullets. It was just awesome. Um, and so, but young or old, I mean, they had some old uh, John Deere tractors, some new John Deere tractors. And, and, and you look at the tractor and its worth comes from who made it, who manufactured it. Oh, that's a John Deere. It doesn't matter if it's old or if it's young. That's a John Deere. I'm going to show it off. Uh, you know, and I'm just going to ride laps around the carnival. And if you look to the left and you look to the, to the right, no matter uh, if you're young, old, uh, no matter what race, no matter what gender, you have intrinsic worth and value because you are manufactured by God. And God, when he looked at uh, creation, he said it's good. When he looked at humanity, he said it's very good. He's very good. So God has marked, God has stamped humanity with the Imago Dei, and meaning I protect what I value. You don't, like humanity, if, if, you have, if I have an issue with you, I ultimately have an issue with God, someone made in the image of God. And so God, humanity, God created humanity, and that is, humanity is extremely precious to him. Uh, we're valuable, prized. Why? Because of where we came from. Origin implies value. If we came from an accident, if we came from just a primordial bowl of soup, how do we come at arriving at intrinsic value? If we come from an eternal, uh, all-powerful, all-loving God of the universe, that's where our value is derived. And so uh, what we see in our, in our text is um, what the Apostle Paul clearly articulates in verse 9 is that there's no partiality between God, that humanity, whether you're in a, a parent or a uh, a child, or whether you're a pastor or a church member, or whether you are a, a, an employee or employer, is that you are in equal standing before God. Galatians 3.28 says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In first century, in the Roman Empire, this is truly earth-shattering what the Apostle Paul is saying. So that framework right there, question one is that uh, posit number one of our, of our worldview that dismantles the, the presuppositions of the institution of slavery is that humanity is equal in value and worth before God, regardless of class, gender, age, race, so on and so forth. And the second thing is that the greatest commandment, so, so if humanity is created in the image of God and has value, well then how should we live? How should we treat one another? And Jesus gives us the greatest command, the greatest ethic for us to live our lives off of. And it's Matthew 28, 37 through 40, where Jesus says this, um, <clears throat> And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, that you, the humanity was created to love God, to be in relation with God, to know God. And then the second commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So as a follower of Jesus, what we believe is the chief end of our lives, what we should be known for, is loving the other the way Christ has loved us, loving even our enemies the way Jesus Christ loved his enemies sacrificially serving and laying down our lives so that others can thrive and be reconciled to God and restored to relationship with him, to serve them. That's our chief ethic. And so those two things, those two things right there, who humanity is and what humanity is to be, you can't, like, it's simple, simply put, like, if, if the greatest command is to, to love you, I can't enslave you, right? And so uh, it's really simple. It's, it's implicit in the biblical worldview that um, as Christians— it's plain and simple. We, there's, there is no justification. 
for, for the attack coming against us that the scriptures endorse uh, slavery. And then the third thing I want, to, I want to talk about, so we went broad, philosophical, and now I want to go specific to our text um, and talk about some practical considerations, okay? So I know that Don said he was a history nerd, and if you're a history nerd today, then, then listen up, okay, if you haven't been listening, right? So I got some stats for you. According to historian Rodney Stark, historian Rodney Stark, at the time of Paul writing this letter, the number of Christians was around 7,500, so really small. I think that's probably on the lower end of the spectrum, but I, I think that, I mean, that's what the, the it's kind of where the, the data is, about 7,500 believers worldwide. At the same time, the population of the Roman Empire was roughly 60 to 70 million people, 60 to 70 million people. Um, and in addition to that, the percent of the population enslaved, one estimate has it, uh, one, uh, the percent of the population in the Roman Empire of those enslaved was about 85 to 90 percent of the population. Astronomical. Astronomical. And the reason I want to share that, one, is this, is that there is no Roman Empire without um, the master-servant relationship, without Slavery, it wasn't just embedded into their economy, it essentially was their economy. So in one way you could look at it is that if you wanted employment, you didn't just go to Lowe's or to, to Starbucks, you had to find a master to begin to, to work for, um, is one way to look at it. And in addition to that, Greco-Roman slavery in the first century was different than uh, American chattel slavery um, in, in our nation's history. It was different, and I'm going to share some quotes from men smarter than me to uh, show you that. And so this is a quote by Sinclair Ferguson, talking about... Uh, Greco-Roman slavery. Slaves fulfilled a wide variety of roles from the, uh, from the menial through the mundane to the highest activities, um, to the highest activities. Some of them became learned men who served in skilled capacities in education and civil service. Some were able to accumulate considerable wealth for influence. Felix, for example, the Roman governor of Judea before whom Paul appeared, was once a slave but had managed to establish his freedom and gain political position. In that sense, many Roman slaves were not eco- economically and socially degraded as in some cultures. And this is what Paul Copin says. Um, if you've encountered someone who's read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion and, and you want a, a really good book and resource uh, uh, about answering the attacks against the scriptures, Paul Copin has a great book called Is God a Moral Monster? Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copin? If you want to write that down, it's a good resource uh, to have. And he says this. During the first century AD, 85 to 90% of Rome's population consisted of slaves. Although slaves were considered their master's property and didn't have legal rights, they did have quite a range of other rights and privileges. These included, one, the possibility of starting a business to earn potentially large sums of money. Two, the capability of earning money to eventually purchase freedom uh, from their masters. And three, the right to own property. The work of slaves covered the spectrum from horrid conditions in mines to artisans, business agents, and other positions of respect and prestige, such as civil or imperial servant. So what we see is that, the reason I want to share that is that when Paul begins to speak into the master-servant relationship, followers of Jesus in Ephesus, uh, there were masters who came to know Jesus in the local church, and there were servants. And there was a broad broad spectrum of of employment and treatment of the master-servant relationship in the Greco-Roman Empire. And the second thing I want to highlight is this, is that at this point in Paul's letter, the Christian church is an extremely small, illegal, socially marginalized group in Uh, in in Roman world, in Roman society, which uh, leads John Stott to say this. The first answer is the pragmatic one, namely that Christians were at first an insignificant group in the empire. Their religion was itself still unlawful, and they were politically powerless. Besides, slavery was at that time an indispensable part of the fabric of Roman society. 
It would therefore have been impossible to abolish slavery at a single stroke without the complete disintegration of society. Even if Christians had liberated their slaves, they would have condemned most of them to unemployment or penury, uh, which is destitution and and poverty. Um, And so what I want to just hone in on here is that, one, uh, American chattel slavery is different than the first century Greco-Roman world, and the issue was complex for a lot of reasons. And so the indictment that, oh, because we don't see Paul outright condemning this, that therefore, no, that's not at all uh, a fair assessment. And what I want to do to conclude this portion is to just share this one, one illustration, one example, and then we'll move into the text, applying the text to our lives. Imagine you could go to Home Depot right now. Okay, this doesn't exist, but for all you, uh, you know, DIY guys and, and ladies, you're like, okay, ooh, what's the new product? Imagine there was a, 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 a liquid that you could purchase at Home Depot that dissolves concrete. Like you just pour, if you want to remove your driveway and then repave it, all you have to do is just pour this, you know, wash away concrete thing and it just dissolves all of it and then it evaporates, okay? And then if you were, for the sake of illustration, to imagine how do you globally, how do you globally begin to tear apart the philosophical uh, foundation that the institution of slavery rests upon. Like if slavery, the institution of slavery and across the globe and uh, throughout human history, um, if it was pictured as a giant house, how would you take apart that house? Would you go from the top down? Well, what if you went from the top down, but you never got to the foundation? People, evil men, would just continue to build upon that foundation. But the best way to tear down that house, that house being defined as slavery, um, would be uh, from to just tear apart the foundation, to dissolve the concrete, okay? And so imagine in the first century, the, the king, not imagine, this is actually what happened. And historically, in the Western world, this is exactly what we saw, is that it was, it was the Judeo-Christian uh, ethic and worldview that uh, dismantled and led God's people to cry out against the evil institution of slavery, which led to it being uh, abolished. And so imagine, not imagine, in the first century, a little drop of 7,500 people globally gets dropped with this agent that tears apart the concrete philosophical presuppositions of the institution of slavery. And that little drop is placed in society. It's called the kingdom of God, called the church of Jesus Christ, advancing the kingdom of God. And as that little drop begins to spread and people begin to give their lives to Jesus and they center their lives on the love of God and they center their lives on loving other people and they begin to value people rather than see them in different classes, then all of a sudden this spreads through this concrete throughout the the Roman Empire, throughout the globe, and it begins to dissolve and tear apart any understanding and any thinking um, that it is uh, justifiable to enslave another human being. That's one way to look about it. God, God, the little seed of the church is planted, and as that spreads, it begins to uh, dismantle. It's the spark that lets the fire that tears that apart. So that's one way to look at it. I wanted to just touch on that, um, uh, call out the elephant in the room and lean into that and help equip you guys uh, to just give a, a good response to those that ask and then ask them back. Okay, so here's what my core beliefs are is that humanity has value from God and, and that the chief ethic is to love people the way Christ has loved us. Now, why do you think the way you think? Okay, so with that said, let's get into our text and I'm gonna try to condense these. So we're gonna go very broad and applicable for the next 15 minutes here. Famous last words will probably be here for another hour as I try to slow down. So, your work is from the Lord. Your work is from the Lord. Point number one. Notice in our text the command is not to the early church, people who were working secular vocations, were secular, maybe in a secular trade, blacksmiths or civil servants, um, master-servant relationship. Paul doesn't say in the text, hey, if you are in Christ, stop working. Work is wrong. You now need to leave work and enter into ministry. You need to uh, go become monks. 
go into the heart of Asia Minor and brew beer and just hang out with each other and, and create a, or, or sell everything you have and become missionaries. Paul doesn't say that. In the text, what we see, the exhortations to both masters and servants is keep doing what you're doing, but let me tell you how knowing Jesus changes what you're doing. And the reason I want to hone in on that is often we as Christians have a, a, a terrible view of secular vocations. Uh, we really kind of idolize those in ministry, pastors or, or missionaries, and, and then we have a really cheap view of what we do. It's like a secular sacred divide of like, hey, I come here, this is sacred, but then I go to work tomorrow and that's not sacred. Uh, we have a secular sacred kind of divide that uh, sacred is, is church-related stuff, and then I go to the secular work or, or school or, or maybe home life, just parenting my kids, discipling them. Um, but, but when I'm in the sacred space of, of a church or community group, God is so pleased with me. I'm doing God's will. But then when I go to my secular job and I work for Uncle Sam with the government or the military, then God isn't pleased with me. I'm not doing the will of God. And so what we often have is this low level of guilt um, that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing what I should be doing. And in utter contrast to that, the biblical worldview teaches us that work is good and work is from God. Work is good and work is from God. The cultural mandate is what theologians uh, uh, coined, what theologians talk about when they talk about Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This was the command in paradise before the fall that God gave to Adam and Eve. And this is what the cultural mandate says. And the mandate, the reason they call it the cultural mandate is essentially God commissioning humanity to go and create culture out of the wilderness, out of the chaos of, of the universe, of the wilderness to go uh, and, and, and to use the skills and the reasoning and the creativity as one born in the image of God to cause human life to flourish. God's image bearers going across the face of the earth and bringing him glory. Uh, Genesis 1.28 says this, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that does not move on the earth. So this is before the curse of sin. This is before the fall of man. This is paradise, okay? This is perfect peace. This is shalom. And what's amazing here is that God doesn't look at Adam and Eve and say, hey, welcome to paradise. There's this thing called Netflix. Here's a TV. Here's DoorDash and a couch. And, and paradise being defined as pleasure and leisure. That's not, what, that's not what God says about paradise. He says, here is this beautiful sandbox embedded with this mysterious order that I am commissioning you to discover and there's lumber that you can use for a variety of things to, to create an altar, to, to, to preach off of, to worship me, to create a, a house. There's, 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 there's brick and mortar or, you know, these, these things that you can do to create brick and mortar. And, and there's food and nature that you can use. It's this glorious, mysterious scavenger hunt of God's people uh, playing with his creation, right? I just read uh, Tony Ranke's book. God, uh, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's a really good book. I got it at a conference a couple weeks ago, flew through it. But he basically said this line. He's like, imagine that creation is like a 60-gallon drum of, of Legos, of endless possibilities that God has created for us. And he talks about the beauty of technology that um, you, we can worship God because of the iPhone because it's only the order and the minerals and uh, you know, all of the things that got embedded in creation that makes that possible for us. So when we see cars that are self-driving or when we, when, we, when we look at our phones, it's actually God who, who, we're just playing with God's stuff. 
right? And so we can, instead of glorifying, yes, the, we can thank God for brilliant minds who are creating this stuff that caused human life to flourish if used in good ways. But ultimately, if God didn't rig the deck, if God didn't create all the possibilities for us to explore through the cultural mandate, that wouldn't be possible. And thank God that he did do that because that's how we enjoy what we enjoy in creation is because God first spoke it into existence and embedded uranium in the soil and uh, fossil fuels and so on and so forth. And so one is that in paradise, man was created to work. Um, and I heard a, a pastor say, the perfect man is the working man, right? Even before the fall of man where our work was cursed, Adam and Eve were commissioned to work. So one, we have a high view of work. And secondly, what we do is we look to our, our, to our Savior, to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, in one uh, person, was the perfect man. And Jesus Christ worked a trade. He was a carpenter uh, before his earthly ministry. And we need to reflect on that. We need to slow down and think about that. Uh, for decades, in his teenage years, his, his early adulthood, before his early 30s, Jesus was a carpenter. He was fulfilling the cultural mandate. And listen, those years weren't a waste of time. That was Jesus perfectly obeying the Father's will. And so if you're here today, you're commuting to work, and, and you're, maybe you're do, it's a trade, or maybe it's at the Pentagon, or tomorrow you're just, you're just doing something that isn't like actually actual, actual ministry, air quotes. You need to look at your Savior and say, for over a decade, he worked a trade and pr- was perfect. He was sinless. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And so um, Tim Keller has another great book called Every Good Endeavor about a Christian's view of work. And I'm going to share uh, a long quotation from this book because he can say it better than, than I can. This is what he says. The Christian faith gives us a new conception of work as the means by which God loves and cares for his world through us. Look at the places in the Bible that God gives every, every person their food. How does God do that? It is through human work. From the simplest farm girl milking the cows to the truck driver bringing produce to the market to the local grocer, God could feed us directly, but he chooses to do it through work. There are three important implications of this. First, it means all work, even the most menial task, has great dignity. In our work, we are God's hands and fingers, sustaining and caring for this world. Secondly, it means uh, one of the main ways to please God in our work is simply to do work well. Some have called this the ministry of competence. What passengers need first from an airline pilot is not that she speaks to them about Jesus, but she is a great and skillful pilot. (laughs) Third, this means that Christians can and must have a deep appreciation for the work of those who work skillfully but do not share our beliefs. So one, let's have a high view of God, Christians. Let's not have this secular, sacred divide. Our work comes from God, um, and therefore it is good, and it causes human life to flourish. If it is a good secular vocation, not something evil that we need to repent of, none of you are doing that. Um, But that's how we need to view it, right? We're part of something magnificent, part of something beautiful, uh, part of God's plan of uh, provision uh, for others. And so one, your work matters, because God created us for work or work comes from God, but ultimately the reason our work matters is because of who we work for, which leads us to my second point, which is your work is to be done for the Lord. Your work is to be done for the Lord. The repeated refrain in our text is you are serving Jesus Christ before you are serving anyone else. That if you are in Christ and you are a servant or a master, you're not working first for your will and pleasure or for your boss's will and pleasure, but you are working for the will and pleasure of your heavenly boss, Jesus Christ. Often, you know, maybe uh, I've had people say this or people think this, oh, Pastor Nick, it it must be nice for you to work for Jesus. You work for Jesus. I don't. I work for, I got a 
earthly boss. I don't really like him, you know, whatever. But you get to work for Jesus. If you're a Christian, we all work for Jesus. No matter what you're doing, what scripture says is you're ultimately doing it for Jesus. So that as I'm preaching and preparing, I need to be picturing Jesus as the one who's receiving this message. If you're changing a diaper, if you're making food, it's, it's, Lord, let this be done unto you. I'm doing this as an act of worship. So every table that I'm at my desktop could be an altar of worship to Jesus. Where I get to do this for him. I'm not ultimately working for my earthly boss. I'm working to, to bring a smile to God's face, to, to please him in my attitude in this job, whether it's a menial task and I don't like it, right? Whether that's something at work with an Excel sheet or that's something at home with a diaper, you know, whatever it is, Jesus, I want to bring with my heart posture and the way I approach my work, I want to be serving you first and foremost. Colossians 3.23 to 24 is a great summation of our text today. It says this, whatever you do, work heartily, work with discipline. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive and, and inherit the inheritance as your reward for you are serving the Lord Christ. And so if you are here today and a Christian, you're in Christ Jesus, you are first and foremost, no matter your vocation, you are employed by Jesus. He's your employer. He's, you, he, he's who you give an account to. And what's great about it is if you're in a really toxic work environment, a really hard season, is that we have this beautiful promise that as we in Christ let the lordship of Jesus break into our secular vocations, that Jesus Christ will see that, and there's a mysterious reward. There's a mysterious reward of our king to us in that job. And so I had this thought come to me. Um, I watched this uh, really good series, documentary on Netflix called uh, Quarterback, where it's a film crew last season that was embedded with Patrick Mahomes and Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins is a big-time Christian. It's actually really cool to see how his faith breaks into his job. And um, I had this, and, and what you see with this is that there are people who have somewhat menial jobs, but they serve really, really amazing people of, of renown, right? And then I had this thought of like, man, what would it look like if you were to imagine today someone you idolize the most? Maybe it's a celebrity, an athlete, um, a politician, maybe not a politician, sorry. <laughs> celebrity or an athlete, like, like Someone that would just wow you, you know, like if you just met them, your heart would maybe race a little bit and you're like, oh my gosh, I just met so-and-so, right? What if you worked for that person, right? What if you were their barista, right? Or their chef, right? How would that change? Like if I, if I tomorrow was called by God to be like Patrick Mahomes' barista, you know, like come on, that would, what I would be doing wouldn't be exciting, but who I would be doing it for would be really exciting right? And who I'm now working for, the renown, the fame of who I'm working for would have a sense, what we see in our text, of, of reverence and awe, fear and trembling. That's respect of who we're working for. And so if I'm working, if I'm, if I'm, I'm doing pour overs for Patrick Mahomes before his big game, right? And I know that he needs that caffeine, right? To do his thing. And he's depending on me. One, I would have reverence and awe that would lead to joy in what I'm doing. I can't believe I get to do this for Patrick Mahomes. Kansas City Chiefs, two-time Super Bowl champ. This is amazing. Sorry, you Eagles fans in the front row. <laughs> you know? Like, oh, my gosh. And then, and then it was, let me do this with excellence, right? Let me do this with excellence. Let me do this with diligence. Let me do this with integrity and honesty. And, man, there would be joy, right? And now, come on. Like, 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 let's dial, like, let's think about this. Tomorrow, with what 
is before you, parents at home or uh, you on your commute to work tomorrow, you're not working for your boss. You're not working for a paycheck. How much greater is Jesus Christ than Patrick Mahomes? That's, 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 this is what the text is saying. Who we're ultimately working for is the true king of glory who's conquered our greatest enemies. He's currently reigning over the universe. And now in big things and small things, we get to do it for him. I get to preach onto Christ. It, it's, it's something that necessarily shouldn't shatter us, but it's this beautiful invitation of, of why would I not want to be a barista for Patrick Mahomes, Right? Why would I not want to change diapers for Jesus Christ? Why would I not want to go to the Pentagon tomorrow for Jesus Christ? Why would I not want to work construction for Jesus? I get to do this for Jesus. And then our work becomes our witness. And, and before we maybe open our mouth, our, our fellow maybe bosses over us or people shoulder to shoulder begin to ask questions saying, why are you so different? Why are you so diligent? Why are you so happy? Why aren't you trashing your boss? Our boss is terrible. Why won't you join us in trashing him? And you get to say, well, let me tell you about who I'm ultimately working for. That's not my boss. I get, to work, I get to work for Jesus, right? That reality should change how we work, how much greater renown and, and worth is Christ Jesus, who the scriptures say, whether you're in a position of authority or you're just an employee, a servant of some type, is that we all are worshiping Christ. We're all serving him ultimately. That's amazing. Hallelujah, amen. And my last point is this. Your work is not just to be done for the Lord. Your work is to be done with the Lord, is to be done with the Lord. Uh, about six years ago, I had a life-changing reality, like a light bulb moment that completely changed my life. I had a pastor mentor friend of mine who was coaching and discipling me in that season. And my wife and I were in, in the midst of a really um, <laughs> a stressful house flip. Uh, and if you've done one of those things, you know, it can be very stressful. And uh, there's lots of chaos uh, the cultural mandate, you're getting chaos into order, and that's a hard process, okay? And so I'm processing this with my uh, mentor friend of mine who just has just, man, just a genuine love for the Lord, walk with the Lord. And uh, he, he tells me this. I'm, I'm telling him all the burdens with this house. And he goes, just ask the simple question, have you invited Jesus into the house flip? And I'm like, wait, what do you, like, what do you mean? What do, what do you mean? And he's like, have you, have you prayed over the projects? Have you prayed over his provision? Have you prayed over his favor? Have you asked for direction? And, and, and I, at this stage of my life, I go, wait, you can do that? I didn't know you could do that as a Christian. I thought I did that at church or like things in ministry. I, didn't, I thought it'd be like offensive. Like I get struck with lightning and like, a set, like God provide for me. It's like, it's like, no, dude, Christ is with you. The fellowship of the spirit. Like wherever you go, God is with you. What would it look like for you to invite Jesus into that space? And I'll spare you the details of what happened the next day when I went, uh, commuted to do, to do all that stuff, is God showed up in remarkable ways, and it absolutely revolutionized and changed my life. Um, and so we don't just have to work with this orientation of, of, uh, of doing this for the Lord, but Jesus, we see the heart of Christ in Matthew 11. He wants to do it with us. So receive these words. Uh, band, you can come forward. I'm going to conclude with this. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. This is the heart of Jesus to us today. This is the heart of Jesus today for us who are coming here, and we're just heavy laden and burdened. Maybe we're wrestling with guilt for our vocation, and we're just stressed out and burnt out. This is what Jesus Christ says. Come to me, all you, all who hate labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's amazing, what Jesus says here to the weary, to the, to the, the heavy laden and the burden, in their weariness and in their labor, he doesn't say, come to me and I will give you a couch. He says, come to me and I'm going to give you a better yoke for your labors. And this is what biblical scholar Michael Green says about um, what Jesus is saying here. The yoke was the wooden collar that ran across the shoulders of a pair of oxen and enabled them jointly, keyword jointly, to pull enormous weights. And here the carpenter of Nazareth, who made many a yoke, says in effect, my yokes fit well. They do not rub your neck and shoulders. Come to me, get yoked up to me, and you will find a deep peace and satisfaction that you could find, never find elsewhere. I have come for you, come to me. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is like any master you will ever serve in your entire life. Because what master do you know would use this illustration in the midst of your labor and not say, if you're heavy laden and burdened, work harder. Work your fingers to the bone. The numbers aren't adding up this quarter. Keep going. Uh, Muscle up. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus leaves his throne and uses a a farming uh, offensive imagery for the king of kings. And he says, I'm under a heavy yoke right now. I'm under, and what I'm doing to you in your labor is saying, do you want to take off the yoke of you being yoked alone, and do you want to come under my yoke and us being shoulder to shoulder in our labor together? That's the heart of Christ to you. He wants to be shoulder to shoulder to you, with you, in your life, in your labor. That's where rest comes, is doing it with Christ. The, the, the secret to rest is not stopping labor. It's about all about who you labor with, who you labor with. And so the question that I want to, Hone in on before, we, before I pray and we dive into communion is this, is, is today is will you say yes to Jesus in your work, in your labor, whatever that is for you. Um, you can begin to fellowship with God in prayer um, as we prepare our hearts for communion, but maybe you're just weary. Maybe uh, it's been an exhausting season of, of work and you, your, your walk with the Lord just feels apathetic and um, you're just going through the motions or, or maybe you're a uh, a mom at home with the kids or a dad at home with the kids and it's just really tough soil and you're asking God where are you in the midst of this and what we see from the scriptures the heart of Jesus is saying is saying will you take the yoke that I have upon you will you lay down the yoke of separation from me of, of white knuckling life of trying to do it in your own strength and will you come under my yoke and invite me into your labor um, and so let's do that as we take communion uh, today, um, what communion commemorates is just the heart of our King for us. This is the King of glory, the true master, the true Lord over everyone. If you need communion elements, they're in the hallway. And what we see is how Jesus Christ has served us in his position of authority, in his position of, of lordship. This is how God chose to love sinful humanity, is that Jesus loved us to the point of laying his life down to save us from our sins and to restore us into fellowship with him. And so today, uh, as we prepare our hearts to take communion, I'm gonna pray and then we'll take communion and, and sing together. But as you pray, think of all the ways that Jesus Christ has served you. Think of all the ways that he's provided for you. Think of all the ways that this master, instead of telling you to just come and serve him, think of all the ways that your life has changed for all of eternity because the Christ of glory has laid down his life and entered into your world. So let's pray.
Father, we love you. God, we thank you, Jesus, that you so long to get in the midst of our lives. It's wild. The God who spoke the galaxies into existence is holding out a yoke and say, hey, can we do this together? Tell me about your day. Tell me about what's on your heart. Tell me about what's stressing you out. Tell me about that meeting coming up. Ask me for wisdom. I want to help. That's the whole reason Jesus came was to invade our lives. And we're the ones who miss out when we just try to do it in our own strength. And so, Jesus, would you come and would you coach us? Would you teach us? What does it look like to, to, to live life for you and to live life with you for your glory, Lord God? And I pray, Lord, that, that, that your kingdom would break in to, quote, unquote, secular, our secular spaces today, Lord God. That we would know that wherever we go, it's sacred territory because you are with us. And we can praise you in that moment. We can do these things as an act of worship, even menial tasks as an act of worship to you. And we get to do it with you. Thank you. That's, that's your heart for us today. So come, Holy Spirit, and would you apply that truth to all of your people today. In your name we pray. Amen.